Hey, good morning. Good afternoon. I just got up a little while ago. No, I didn't. I lied. Anyway, happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. However you celebrate. Hope you had fun this morning. The reason why I say good morning is because I didn't sleep well last night, so I slept in today. So I'm just kind of starting my day. I know it's 6.30, but it happens, right? Anyway, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is our almost our final read of this book. I think we have to this read, another read, and then boom, we're done. And then we go to the Salem, back to the Salem Witch Trials. I hope you all had a great holiday. And uh, it's kind of sad to see it go. I love, I love this holiday season. But uh, anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. So I'm also the host of California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state, which means we can get to you wherever you're at. It may take us a while, but we'll get to you. Today, I'm going to be reading uh, from Sylvia Schultz's book. It took me a second. <laughs> Too many sweets. From Sylvia Schultz's book. It's been an interesting read. Like I said, we're probably down to two uh, days of reading, and then we're finished with it, and we then we move back into the Salem book. But uh, it's been a very interesting read, you know, holiday, holiday and winter-themed stories. All right. That being said, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you hear tonight, please hit that follow button and uh, the like button. Uh, I'd really appreciate it. If you're watching from YouTube, there's a little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner over here, right there. That's our mascot, and that's how you subscribe to our channel. There's 406, more than 460 videos sitting over on the YouTube channel. So if that's an interest for you, that would be great. That would be great if you would subscribe, because uh, we just don't only cover paranormal topics. We, co we cover other stuff as well, and I think you'll find something to your liking if you check it out. Plus, you'll get a notification every time a new video comes out. All right. Okay, so we're going to continue with this book. I'll read for about an hour. And then you guys can go back to holidaying. And if you're sitting around tonight, just uh, eating your dinner, kind of kicking back with your fuzzies up, you know, with your fuzzies up on a footrest or something, just relax. Get some hot cocoa. Just listen to the book. You don't have to do anything. Turn the lights off. Sit by the fire. And cl maybe close your eyes like you're meditating, but you're, you're listening to me read. Okay? All right. So without further ado, let me get started. Okay. Saying goodbye. Sometimes the spirits of the animals we love come back. And sometimes those spirits are given a chance to say their goodbyes to us, just as people do. The French scientist Camille Flammarion was also an investigator of psychic phenomena. In 1912, his, in his scientific journal, Analyse de Sciences Psychiques, he published a story that, of a Mr. M.G. Greaser had shared with him. Greaser was a very solitary boy, preferring study to socializing. His one companion was a St. Bernard, Bobby, who was with him nearly constantly. On December 14, 1910, Bobby was with Greaser's parents in Switzerland, two kilometers from where Greaser was. I think it's Greaser, not Greaser. Okay. About 7.30 p.m., I heard the door of my room open and saw Bobby standing in the doorway looking unhappy. I called him to me. He didn't look up, and he didn't obey my order. I called again. He came, rubbed against my legs, and laid down on the floor at my feet. I bent to stroke him, and he wasn't there. With a sick feeling, Grazer ran to the nearest phone. He dialed the number for Bobby's veterinarian. That's when Grazer found out that Bobby had been put to sleep two minutes earlier. The Death Coach 
On the night of December 11th, 1876, a servant of the McNamara's of County Clare in Ireland was making his evening rounds on the estate of, of, uh, of Innistimon. In the dark, he heard the rumbling of wheels on the road. The hour was very late, and the watchman knew no more vehicle was expected. I'm just looking at something really quick. All right. Yeah. Okay. He realized that the noise was coming from a phantom coach, a coach that, according to local legend, foretold approaching death. The servant knew that at that appearance of the spectral coach, all of the gates in its path should be opened. Then the ghost coach would not stop at the house for a member of the family, but would only foretell the death of a relative far away. The watchman ran ahead of the spectral carriage, flinging open the gates ahead of it. Gasping for breath, hand pressed to a stitch in his side, he wrenched the third gate open with a clang, then threw himself face down on the ground next to it. The carriage rumbled through the open gate as the watchman sobbed for breath. The next day, Admiral Sir Burton McNamara died in London, many miles from an Eastimon. Sir Geoffrey Walks. Geoffrey de Mandeville, Earl of Essex, was quite possibly the most hated man of his time. He lived in England during the tumultuous 12th century. He was the grandson of a Norman baron who fought alongside William the Conqueror at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Geoffrey himself was no stranger to conflict. He played a dangerous game when Stephen and Matilda were jockeying for the crown of England in the 12th century. Geoffrey cheerfully accepted honors, honors and patronage from both the potential rulers. He was accused of treason against King Stephen, in England, but was pardoned. After this narrow brush with disaster, Sir Geoffrey became the sheriff and justice of London, as well as Essex, Middlesex, and Hertfordshire. This gave him absolute power over the capital of England and three of its counties. Sir Geoffrey was at the top of the heap both in wealth and in political influence. But his ascendancy also proved to be his downfall. Sir Geoffrey's ambition made him cruel. He attacked Ramsey Abbey, the fourth richest abbey in England. He evicted the monks and looted the church. He then moved himself and his men into the abbey, using it as his home base to ransack nearby towns. For this plunder and desecration of church property, he was excommunicated, although he was later given absolution. Sir Geoffrey didn't only attract negative attention from the church. King Stephen, who once again had the upper hand in the, in the power struggle, suspected Geoffrey of collaborating with Matilda. The king sent officers to arrest the earl and take him to London. There, under threat of hanging, Geoffrey was forced to give up the Tower of London and his castles in Essex, his biggest military assets. Although Sir Geoffrey was released after that tussle with the king, he was burning for revenge. He led an open revolt against Stephen, forcing the king to march against him. As part of his campaign, Geoffrey attacked Burnwell Castle, one of the fortresses built by King Stephen to defend against the traitorous earl. The earl's death was almost an anticlimax, the result of raw stupidity on his part. During the siege of the castle, Sir Geoffrey removed his helm for a moment and was shot in the head by a bowman on the castle's rampart. Sir Geoffrey lingered for a few weeks before dying at at Milden Hall in Suffolk in September 1144. Because of his excommunication, the Earl was denied Christian burial. His body was taken to London, and he was buried there. So why did Sir Geoffrey walk in East Barnet, a suburb of North London? His ghost was to be seen wandering the small village. And at Christmas time, the spook 
wearing spurs and a red cloak. Could be seen in nearby Trent Park, Cock Fosters. The only connection he had with the area was that it had been a small part of his vast territory. Why haunt this one place? Well, there is another version of Sir Geoffrey's demise that can be considered when discussing his haunting. The story goes that the outlaw Earl drowned in a well in Trent Park near East Barnett. There are also whispers that the Earl hid some of the treasure he looted from Ramsey Abbey down that well, and that he is still searching for that chest of gold. This provides a handy, though not historically accurate, explanation for the haunting. Stories can get a little mixed up during the passing of 900 years. In December 1926, the ghost of Sir Geoffrey returned East Barnet in fine form. The year before, strange things had, had, had been seen and heard in municipal stable area there. In 1926, the district council decided to demolish the stable and repurpose the bricks into a new road. The roadwork had barely started when reports came of Sir Geoffrey walking across the floors of an old house nearby, ostentatiously clanking his spurs on the floorboards. This phenomenon was repeated three times. At the same house, the family experienced several impatient knocks on the front door when there was no human standing there. Then the litter box rattled, scaring both the family and their dog. Strange noises were heard near the roadworks, too and a man walking near the haunted stables at midnight heard the jingle of the phantom spurs and caught a brief glimpse of an apparition wearing a red cloak. This being December, many London newspapers sent reporters to East Barnet in search of a good ghost story. But for some reason, many of the reporters wrote excited articles about the ghost, but then denied the reports. This cast serious doubts on the haunting. A small group of local ghost hunters went out to East Barnet late, late in December to wait for the phantom to appear. They claimed that they did see the Earl, dressed in armor, standing in the moonlight. But because of the reporter's backpedaling, no one believed them. Six years later, in December 1932, dozens of people saw Sir Geoffrey's ghost. A ghost hunting group had, do had done some research. The records they had to work with only went back 20 years, but in that time, the ghost had reliably appeared every sixth year. Older residents of East Barnett claimed that the spirit appeared as midnight approached, between the full moon and the last quarter of the month of December. Armed with this information, the group went out for an investigation on Saturday, December 17, 1932. Just before the moon rose that night, the ghost hunters heard a weird noise off in the distance, a noise like the clanking of spurs. The noise came closer and closer until it was right beside the group. Then it faded, moving away from them. The group slowly followed the sounds of clanking spurs until they got to a place at the edge of East Barnett Valley where the land rose a bit. There was a break in the cloud cover, and there, on a sloping rise, they saw the armored figure of Sir Geoffrey in the faint moonlight. According to the group's reports, the glass was a fleeting one, but very distinct, and the sight is fixed in the minds of those who saw it as plainly as if it had been revealed in midday sunlight. The ghost hunters were giddy with excitement. They hoped that the ghost would return, either on St. Thomas's Eve the next Tuesday, or on Christmas Eve, both days being considered especially favorable for ghostly manifestations. Parentheses, St. Thomas was the apostle who doubted the existence of life after death. End parentheses. The group decided to hold another investigation on Christmas Eve, and they invited anyone who wanted to join them to come along. Everyone met an hour before midnight on Christmas Eve, 
The sightseers drifted off in various directions, while the investigators and a few others moved a quarter mile south of the village to a small wooden bridge across Pym's Brook. This bridge connected the old church path to the, to the road to, to Cockfosters. At midnight, as midnight approached, the main group at the bridge started hearing strange noises to the south. They started walking slowly towards the sounds. They followed the, the, the stream for a while, walking along the bank, and the noises stopped. The group continued on heading, continued on, heading towards a nearby cemetery. Suddenly, the drawn, the drawn-out howl of a dog split the night. The dog seemed to be wailing in distress. The group stopped, listening tensely, waiting for whatever would happen next. The soulful howl came again, in among the investigators. The ghost hunters didn't dare break the spell of the manifestation by turning on their flashlights, so they stood, frozen to the spot. The dog continued to keen, and soon the clanking of ghostly armor was added to the mournful song. Over there, someone yelled. They all saw the shadowy form of a headless dog fading into the mist. Legend spoke of a hound that often accompanied Sir Geoffrey, but no one alive had seen the dog's ghost. Then the group was surrounded by the clank of armor. The ghost of Sir Geoffrey stood in the moonlight for a long moment. Then he, too, melted into the mist as he watched. History doesn't tell us if Sir Geoffrey and maybe his faithful hound appeared six years after that. But in 1938, the people of England had other things on their mind. But December mists still gather in the valley of East Barnett, and there are plenty of places for ghosts to hide. William, the ghost of William Therese. William Therese was the Kenneth Brana of his day, a superstar of the London theater scene in the 1890s. He was known for playing the heroes in popular melodramas. Handsome, talented, he was royalty of the theater set and played most often at the, Adel at the Adelphi Theater in the Strand. And that was where he made a violent end on the evening of December 16, 1897. Therese made a habit of dining in the, at the Green Room Club just off the Strand. It was a short walk from the club to Main Lane, a narrow street behind the theater, where he could get into the back door of the Adelphi. All the leading players of the theater had a key. On December 16th, Therese walked as usual from the club to the theater, accompanied that evening by John Graves, an elderly friend of his. Chatting companionably, the two men turned into Main Lane. The street was dimly lit. Neither of the men noticed the figure standing across the street in the flickering shadows cast by the gaslight streetlights. The man stood silently, a dark-eyed figure in a black cloak, his hat pulled down low over his eyes. As the two friends approached the back door, Graves told Therese good night and walked on. Therese unbuttoned his frock coat and reached into his pocket for the key. As he slid the key in the lock, the dark figure rushed across the narrow lane and plunged a knife into Therese's back. The knife glanced off the actor's shoulder blade, leaving a bad wound. Therese staggered around to face his attacker, who struck twice more. The second knife blow landed high up near Therese's spine. The third pierced the actor directly over the heart. The attack on William Therese never should have happened. It was the result of a tragic mistake. Therese's attacker was a bit player at the Adelphi by the name of Richard Arthur Prince. Age 32, he had come to seek his fortune on the London stage. Unfortunately, Prince was a wretchedly bad actor, and he was lucky to get bit parts. 
His fellow bit players at the Adelphi called him Mad Arthur behind his back. But to his face, they cruelly encouraged his vanity and his dreams of fame and fortune. The trouble really started during the play that had previously run at the theater. The other bit players teased Prince unmercifully, assuring him that he was destined to become one of the greatest actors of all time. They told him that William Therese himself was insanely jealous of Prince and had made sure the other actor was relegated to bit parts. They even had Prince, pathetically, act out Therese's role as the hero of the show. They commiserated loudly with Prince, saying that Therese's role really should have gone to him. And all the while, they were laughing at him behind their hands. Prince, already unstable, was consumed by a rabid jealousy towards Therese. Therese, meanwhile, was completely unaware of the drama going on backstage. He didn't even know Prince by sight. When the play finished its run, all the bit players, including Prince, were of course out of work. Prince auditioned for roles elsewhere, but never made even had callbacks. He applied to the Actors Benevolent Fund for unemployment relief, and he also approached other actors for handouts, including William Therese. Therese, when asked, unhesitantly gave Prince a sovereign. This was on the evening of December 13th. The next day, the Actors Benevolent Fund met and turned down Prince's request for assistance. When he heard the news, Prince asked who the chairman of the committee was. Someone told him Terry, meaning Edward Terry, a comedian. But Prince heard Therese. The unbalanced Prince went to a shop and bought a sharp butcher's knife for one shilling, nine pence, using the sovereign that Therese had given him. Then at dusk, he went to Main Lane to lie in wait for William Therese. After the attack, Richard Prince simply stood there while people rushed to the scene. He was seized and arrested immediately. Meanwhile, Therese was carried into the theater through the door he'd been about to open. He died 20 minutes later, his head cradled by his leading lady, Jessie Millward. Therese was only 41 years old. The impact of Teresa's death was even felt miles away at his home. That evening, Tom, the actor's 17-year-old son, was playing chess with his younger brother. Mrs. Therese sat in an armchair nearby. The family terrier dozed contentedly in her lap. A few minutes past eight, the exact time of the stabbing, little dog suddenly leapt from Mrs. Therese's lap and ran circles around the room, barking frantically. Then he darted under the table and stayed there, cowering and snapping at something only he could see. The family managed to calm the shivering wild-eyed dog. Half an hour later, a cast member from Place Secret Service, who had been an eyewitness to the tragedy, knocked on the door with the shattering news. Teresa's son-in-law, a fellow actor named Seymour Hicks, was taken to the Bow Street Police Station to identify Prince. Prince was raving and foaming at the mouth. He was later found guilty but insane and died in Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum in 1937. Hicks left the police station and went to the Adelphi, where Teresa's body lay on the couch. The actor played the hero even in death. His face was calm and his lips curved in a slight smile. Hicks knew by the couch. Hicks, Hicks knelt by the couch to pay his respects to his father-in-law. Years later, Hicks wrote of the experience he had in the empty room. Quote, in the serenity and quiet of the room, I to this day feel sure I heard a voice say to me, Are there men living such fools as to think there is no hereafter? 
that night, I knew beyond all shadow of a doubt that William, Therese, and myself would meet again. End quote. True to his word, Therese began haunting his beloved Adelphi almost immediately after his tragic death. Many actors reported hearing strange tapping noises coming from Therese's old dressing room, but things didn't really heat up until 1928, over 30 years after Therese was murdered. Every evening, when he entered the theater by the main lane door, Therese had been in the habit of giving Jesse Millward's dressing room a door a tap with his walking stick as he went down the corridor to his own room. It was his, it was his affectionate signal to his leading lady that he had arrived. In 1928, a musical comedy actress named June was using Jesse Millward's old dressing room. It was June's practice not to leave the theater after a matinee. Instead, she would have a light meal brought in from a restaurant, then have a nap on the Chase Lounge until about 7.15 p.m. But the couch didn't provide much rest. As soon as June relaxed enough to drop off to sleep, the couch would start to vibrate, then lurch, as if someone were underneath it, kicking the bottom. Then a pale greenish light would form in front of her dressing room. I'm sorry, in front of her dressing table mirror, then disappear. June mentioned these things to Ethel Rowland, her dresser. Ethel replied that often, when June was on stage, a knock would sound on the dressing room door, a knock that sounded like someone rapping the door with a walking stick. When Ethel went to answer the door, there was never anyone there. June eventually told the theater veteran at the Adelphi about these strange events. They suggested it might be William Therese returning to the theater he loved so much. The actors held a seance at the theater to try and contact their colleague. Nothing happened during the seance. But afterwards, June was no longer troubled by noises and lights in her room. The Adelphi's historian, W.J. McQueen Pope, wrote in 1959 that an apparition of Therese had been seen only once outside the theater. A few years before, on a summer's evening, a man who didn't know the story of the murder, was walking on Main Lane near the theater's back door, exactly where the stabbing had taken place. He saw a handsome man in old-fashioned clothes coming towards him. The man passed him without a word, but his appearance was so striking that the witness turned for another look, but the man had completely vanished. The witness was sure he just hallucinated the whole thing, until the historian told him about the murder of William Therese some 60 years in the past. Christmas Hauntings Billy and Linda Miklos and their children, Billy Jr. and Nicole, live in a gorgeous 18th century farmhouse in Allentown, Pennsylvania. They moved into the house in 1977 and discovered almost immediately that they were sharing their new home with more than one ghost. For several nights after they moved in, Linda and Billy were kept awake by, a, by the thundering hoofbeats of a horse that galloped in circles around the house. The galloping was so energetic that the couple could hear the horse's hooves kicking up gravel. But there was no gravel, and there was no horse. The house is set in the deep woods, with only soft forest duff around it. So after that, Linda began to hear children's... Hang on. There we go. Linda began to hear children's voices calling Mommy. Excuse me one second. Okay. <laughs> Horribly in the itch. Billy Jr. spoke of seeing a small girl walking close to Linda. Unnerved, but also intrigued, Linda did some research. She traced its history all the way back to the first settler, George Schubert, a soldier in the Revolutionary War. Schubert had built a cabin on the property. The cabin later burned to the ground. Then Schubert built the farmhouse that now stands on the property. 
Shortly after the house was built, five of the Schubert children died of smallpox within a week. With such tragedy in his past, it's no wonder the house is a magnet for spirit energy. Linda started a diary to keep track of all the paranormal events in the house. She discovered that much of the activity happens in April and around Christmas. On Christmas Eve, 1981, eight-year-old Billy Jr. and his sister Nicole were sleeping in Billy's room with the door open. Nicole was restless and kept waking up. Suddenly, she shook Billy awake and pointed to the door. A glowing figure stood beside the door to the parents' room. As they watched, it vanished. During another Christmas season, the, the, the family invited a friend of theirs, Larry, to stay with them for the holiday. Larry was a Vietnam vet who had just gone through the breakup of his marriage. The Miklosos, the Miklosos had cut their tree and carried it home a couple of days before Christmas. And Linda felt that Larry would welcome an invitation to help decorate the tree. The, the weather was unseasonably warm, but Linda felt that a fire in the fireplace would add to the festive air. Larry decorated the tree while Billy carried in some wood and got the fire going. Linda brought in snacks for the men as they worked. When the men were finished, they all sat down to relax and to enjoy the crackling fire as a colorful tree and a colorful tree. Someone, though, didn't seem to appreciate Larry's decorating efforts. The tree started shaking violently, and all the ornaments fell off and rolled across the floor. Billy stood up, about to give the cat holy hell for jumping on the tree. But the cat was nowhere to be seen. Then the room turned icy cold. Knowing that a severe drop in temperature can sometimes announce a ghostly manifestation, Billy decided to try an experiment. Linda had arranged colored balls in a sleigh as a decoration. I'm just going to that page for, for, yeah, for the mantelpiece. Billy spoke to the empty air. Listen, if anybody is really here, knock the balls out of the sleigh. Ten minutes later, a ball rose from the sleigh and dropped with a click on the mantel. There was a small building on the property that had been the groom's quarters when the land was, was a horse farm. Larry had lived in the building for a while, but had moved out. He later committed suicide. Billy had lit a kerosene heater in the building to keep the pipes from freezing. On December 23, 1983, Billy was deathly sick, far too sick to get out of bed. By Christmas Day, he was feeling better. The first thing he did was go out to the, was, was go to the outbuilding to check out the kerosene heater, which would run only 24 hours on one tank. Quote, that should have been bone drying out, he said. But when he got to the building to check on the heater, it was full of fuel and burning. Billy couldn't explain how the heater got filled, but he suspects maybe Larry returned to do his friend a favor. During another Christmas season, the family had a relative from Ohio come for a visit. Sometime between 1.30 and 2 a.m., Angie came suddenly awake. A loud scratching noise had pulled her from sleep. It started at the top of the stairway and grew fainter near, near the bottom as if a large dog was walking down the stairs. About 20 minutes later, Angie heard a crash in the kitchen, as if a metal tray had fallen off the counter. A few minutes after that, Angie said she sensed a friendly presence sitting on a chair in the loft, where she was trying to sleep. And, according to Linda's haunting diary, on Wednesday night, December 18, 1985, she was in the bedroom reading at 11 o'clock at night, 
while Billy was taking a shower in the basement. As Linda read, she heard piano music filling the house. Billy barged into the bedroom, his face half covered with shaving lotion. Quote, tell me you were just playing the piano, Linda, he begged. End quote. She shook her head. That was the one and only time the piano played a phantom tune. It never happened again. Calvert Mansion. Lord Calvert's Mansion stands in Riverdale, Maryland. It's a late Georgian plantation house that was built between 1801 and 1807. It was rumored to be haunted by Lord Calvert's son-in-law, who hanged himself from a tree in the front yard. The mansion is now a museum, but in 1972 it was occupied by 75-year-old Mr. Smith. He was uncomfortable rattling around the haunted mansion by himself, so he asked Rick, a deputy sheriff in Prince George's County, to move in with him for protection. Excuse me. One December night, while Mr. Smith was out visiting friends for Christmas, Rick was outside in the barn, tending to the horses. His chores done, he started for the house and noticed that the light in the attic was on. For a moment, he just stood and stared at the lit window. He knew the attic wasn't wired for electricity, but he could plainly see the rafters through the window. The light source was strong, not flickering. It had to be coming from inside the attic. Rick's police training kicked in, and he rushed into the house in search of an intruder. He secured all three of the lower floors, making sure all the house's outside doors were locked. Then he headed to the attic. Slowly, Rick pushed the attic door open, only darkness in his eyes. Rick knew he'd seen light in the attic less than five minutes before. There was a lamp in the attic for emergencies, but the bulb was completely cold. The deputy shivered. None of his police training had prepared him for seeing a bright light in an attic window, an attic without electricity. The Dana House One of Frank Lloyd Wright's most famous and intriguing homes is the Dana House in Springfield, Illinois. Constructed, construction started in 1902, and the huge house was finished in 1904. It's a magnificent example of Wright's prairie style, the first of Wright's designs to feature two-story rooms like the hall, the gallery, and the dining room. Frank Lloyd Wright fans and architecture enthusiasts drool over this house, which features a library with glass-fronted glass built-in bookcases. Sorry about that. A billiards room and a bowling alley. And paranormal investigators salivate because although management and state officials deny it, the Dana House is haunted. Very haunted. The Dana House was built at the request of Sue C. Lawrence, later known as Susie. You see it, don't you, Sue C.? Susie, I see it. Okay. Born in October 1862, Sue married Edwin Ward Dana on December 4, 1883. The marriage was short and fraught with financial troubles. Edwin Dana was a businessman, but not a very good one. Starting out as a real estate investor, Dana set himself up as president of the Western Business Agency. When that failed, his father-in-law sent him to Oregon to manage some mines. In Oregon, Edwin suffered a fatal accident in one of the mines. Susie came back to Springfield. Her spirits in tatters. Her husband was dead, and she had also buried two infant children, that she'd been unable to carry to term. On February 17, 1901, a few years after Susie's return from Oregon, her father passed away. Artie Lawrence's death was another blow to the young widow, but it left her with a financial windfall. 
she decided to build a grand new home for the surviving members of her family. Herself, her mother, her grandmother, who had passed away a year and a half later in August of 1902, and her cousin, Flora Lawrence. Wanting the sophistication a Chicago architect could bring to Sleepy Springfield, she tapped Frank Lloyd Wright for the job. Susie Lawrence Dana lived a life marked by tragic losses, despite her elegant surroundings. She married a concert singer from Denmark in March of 1912. Jorgen Constantin Dahl was half Susie's age, so it was quite the scandal. He died just a year later. In 1915, she married a native of Springfield, Charles German. They eventually separated, and she divorced him in 1930. Susie had no head for money. In 1915, she received about $10,000 in income from her father's rental properties. Unfortunately, she had borrowed $132,000 to fund, to fund her lavish lifestyle. Susie turned to the spirit world for advice and consolation. She held seances in her home on a regular basis, inviting the cream of Springfield society. Maybe some of that spiritualist energy is imbued in the walls of the gracious house. Susan Lawrence passed away on February 20th, 1946 but her spirit still seems to linger in her beloved home. In life, Susie loved to throw parties. She started things off with a bang during the holiday season of 1904, the year the house was finished. She hosted lavish holiday parties. She followed those up with house with housewarmings for the women's club, parties for local children, including those in orphanages, dinners for residents of nursing homes, and a special gala for families of the workers who had built the house. And apparently Susie still loves the holidays. I spoke, this is from the author. I spoke with Mike Anderson, a folk musician, also jovially known as the Dulcimer Guy. Along with other musicians, Mike performs for the open houses held at the Dana House every December. Mike has been performing at the home for nearly 40 years, and he readily admits to several chilling experiences. He claims that the house definitely has its own personality. Mike brings a unique perspective of a musician to his experiences. One of the favorite places to put a musician is above the front door. There's a balcony there, he said. There was one year myself and a vocalist and a guitar player were doing Christmas music on that balcony. The sun was pouring through a window, and that sun was hot. The musicians' shifts were eight hours long, with the musicians playing in two to three-hour stints. The other two performers took a break, leaving Mike on the balcony to play solo. Suddenly, and this is a quote, the balcony got deathly cold, to the point where I could barely move my fingers to play, and it stayed that way for about ten minutes, end quote. During another Christmas open house, one of the performers was a young violin player, a boy about 12 or 14 years old. As a seasoned, as a, as a seasoned performer, Mike led the boy to the balcony where his violin music with dazzled guests coming in the front door, while Mike set himself up in the gallery. As Mike went towards the gallery, he heard the boy's panicked voice calling him back. Mike returned to the front door and looked up at the boy. The violin player peered down at him, his face a picture of woe. I can't play here, the boy said. Why not? I don't know. The boy, a budding professional, was clearly chagrined at his own behavior. But when he mentioned that his fingers were freezing cold, Mike realized immediately what the issue was. He switched places and sent the young, the young violin player to the gallery instead. Mike also shared another strange experience he had in Dana House. 
and again it happened regularly during the Christmas open houses. Quote, the house is set up so you can pretty much tell people, tell where people are from the sound of their voices, Mike told me. He was set up to play on the balcony, and he kept and he kept an ear cocked for an approaching tour, you know, for approaching tour groups. When the group came with an earshot of the balcony, Mike would start playing a Christmas carol on the dulcimer. One day, as a tour group came up, Mike dropped into what child is this? He noticed a woman walking several steps behind the tour group. She was wearing a long winter coat in deference to the season. The group moved on into Susie's bedroom. The woman in the long coat stopped on the steps leading down to the bedroom, just off the balcony. From the corner of his eye, Mike saw the group go into the room while the woman hung back. Mike turned to say to her, you need to catch up with your group, but the woman was gone. This happened several times, and each time Mike had just launched into what child is this? On the balcony, you know, on the balcony. Sorry about that. It got to where I could almost make her appear just by playing that particular carol, Mike told me. Later, a harp player joined the ensemble of performers. She'd been at the house before, so Mike asked, is there any place you don't want to be stationed? The harp player shrugged. Not really, but the balcony can get pretty weird. Mike nodded fervently. I know exactly what you mean. And he told the harpist a story. The harpist's face paled. You mean you've seen her too? Let me grab a sip of water here, guys. It's really, my, my mouth is, it's my throat. It's like dry all the way in there, like that cotton. That whole cottony thing going on here. Wait a second. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't know, a couple weeks ago, last two weeks, I was freezing with all that cold weather coming through. And now it's warmed up here to where it was like last year now. So I'm not freezing at night. It's crazy. Crazy, crazy. Okay. I am your brother. I almost wanted to do this in the Darth Vader thing. I am your brother. You know, but I changed my mind. Rufus Porter was a well-regarded journalist who lived in the Pikes Peak region near Cascade, Colorado. Porter was known as the hard rock poet. And he wrote many short poems about the human condition. Not fancy poetry, but words that ordinary people can enjoy. In December 1960, Porter was riding the rails from Spokane to Seattle. For want of a ticket, he was huddled in an open boxcar. When the train started to cross the Cascade Mountains, the temperature, already brutally cold, fell to below zero. Porter knew he couldn't survive much longer. Near Leavenworth, Washington, he caught a glimpse of a work camp. He jumped the train and headed and headed painfully towards the camp to seek shelter. He made his way to the watchman's cabin, where a light burned cheerful welcome in the window. With the last of his fading strength, Porter pounded on the door. An older bearded man with kind eyes opened the door. He ushered Porter into the cabin out of the bitter cold. He sat him down <clears throat> next to the fire, knelt before him, and slipped his cold boots off. He fed Porter and treated his frostbite. But when Porter tried to thank him or engage him in conversation, the man would only reply with one simple phrase, I am your brother. After a night spent in a warm, comfortable bed, Porter left the work camp and made his way to Leavenworth. When he got to town, he told his story of being rescued by the watchman and of being invited into the warmth and safety of the cozy cabin. Porter's tale was met with sideways looks and outright denial. The work camp outside of town had been deserted for years, people told him, and the watchman who had supposedly cared for him was long dead. 
Porter refused to believe this. The man's glances of kindness, his generous care, the humble way in which he would say, I am your brother, it all stayed planted firmly in Porter's mind. He decided to go to the work camp in daylight to see things for himself. He found the camp abandoned, just as the men in town had told him. There was no sign of life anywhere in the group, in the camp, and the ashes of the fire on the hearth in the watchman's cabin were cold and dead. The thing at the foot of the bed. Just like superheroes, all paranormal researchers have their own origin story, the event that launched them on their careers as investigators of the unknown. Author Stephen Lancaster came to his first supernatural experience earlier than most. He was just 10 years old when he was attacked by an invisible entity in his bed. Lancaster remembers the day vividly. It was December 14, 1987, and he was living in a small town in western Maryland with his parents and younger brother. The family had moved in several months before. Stephen recalls that the Christmas I'm sorry, Stephen recalls that Christmas was to be their first in the new house. As the older kid, his little brother was just five. Stephen felt perfectly justified in claiming the top bed of the bunk bed set which the family when the family moved in. The boy's bedroom was chilly at night. The house was heated by a cold furnace, and its warmth struggled to reach the second floor. Up on the top bunk, it was even chillier, but it was worth it to Stephen to have that prized spot. On the night of December 14th, the boys had gone to bed at 9 o'clock, but of course going to bed and going to sleep meant two very different things. And kids speak. Stephen and his brother horsed around for a while, keeping quiet to stay off the parental radar. After a couple of hours of covert play, Stephen's little brother was ready to actually go to sleep. He dropped off almost immediately. Stephen, on the other hand, lay awake for a while, tossing and turning in the chilly room. Around one in the morning, Stephen clocked out too. He came fuzzily awake to something pulling on his ankles. He couldn't see much in the dark room, but something was tentatively grasping his ankles and pulling gently. Of course, Stephen assumed it was his little brother. Stephen hung his head over the side of the top bunk, peering down at the bottom bunk. His brother looked like he was sound asleep. Stephen shook his head. Leave it to a pesky little brother to try a trick like that. He snuggled back down to his warm nest and closed his eyes. He had almost dozed off when he felt another tug on his ankles. This one was harder. Again, Stephen poked his head over the bed over the bed rail, hoping to catch his brother diving under his own blankets with a muffled giggle. And again, he heard nothing, and his brother looked into the world. At that point, it occurred to Stephen that his brother might not, not be the one responsible for the ankle tugging. His sleep-fuzzed brain was waking up, and he was beginning to realize that it was virtually impossible for his brother to invade Stephen's domain, give him a tug on the ankle, then slip back under his covers undetected, and, and pretend so convincingly to be fast asleep. As Stephen was mulling over this puzzle, he realized that some invisible something was slowly pulling his blanket down towards the foot of his bed. He reached for his blanket to pull it back, and something grabbed both of his wrists. Quote, Imagine someone grabbing you around the wrists. You know what that feels like. This felt exactly like that. Something was holding on to me and not letting go. The skin around my wrists was actually indented as if someone were physically grabbing me, Stephen would write much later in his book, True Case Files of a Paranormal Investigator. 
It's a straightforward description of stark terror. The unseen entity had hold of Stephen, and whatever it was had no intention of letting him go. Within moments, Stephen felt weak, drained of energy, and the entity was still pulling him down to the foot of the bed. Moments before, Stephen had sat upright to reach for the retreating blankets. Now, the phantom yanked him forward, flipping him so that his feet were on the pillow, and still he was tugged, pulled relentlessly towards the foot of the bed. Stephen tried to drag in a deep breath to scream, but it was like trying to yell in a dream. Instead of a full-throated holler for help, Stephen's cries of mom and dad came in thin whistling gasps. And yet he still struggled, fighting with the wiry kid, with wire, with wiry kid strength against the invisible monster that had him in his clutches. In its clutches, suddenly Stephen broke free. He had been tugging so hard he overbalanced and crashed into the wall. The back of his head hit the wall so hard it left a dent in the wood paneling. Stephen found his voice, "Mom!" His parents came running. His little brother was roused from sleep. Everyone pulled into the room as Stephen slammed out of his, stammered out his incredible story. Despite the evidence of the head-sized dent in the wall, Stephen's parents wrote the story off as an amazing, vivid nightmare. The boys were soon back to sleep, but a paranormal investigator was born that terrifying night. There is an interesting postscript to this story. In 1987, Stephen's parents both dismissed his tale. Theirs was a Christian home, and such talk was discouraged. But many years later, Stephen was talking with his mother about the long-ago night, and, and she decided to share a secret with him. When Stephen's mother was herself 10 years old, the exact same thing ha had happened to her. Her encounter with the invisible entity was so violent, it left visible marks on her wrists, where she was pulled towards the foot of, of her bed. Creepy. Definitely creepy. The Mystery of St. Luke's Church. This story happened in Liverpool, England in the early 1990s. It has never been explained. The story begins one foggy December evening in 1991. On the evening of December 20th, at 7 p.m., the Edwards family of Dovecott decided to do a bit of late Christmas shopping in Liverpool City Centre. Mr. Edwards drove his wife and four children to town in his old Volvo estate. Many people had similar plans for the evening, and finding a place to park was a chore. Mr. Edwards trolled the streets, looking for a parking spot. While his daughter and three sons, too excited to fuss, watched the spectacular Christmas decorations slide by the car windows. Abby, the youngest at six years old, was especially entranced with the colorful lights. As Mr. Edwards grumbled about parking, Mrs. Edwards pointed to a secluded side street called Bold Place. That's perfect, Mr. Edwards said. He turned and drove up the poorly lit cobblestone road, which ran past the back of St. Luke's Church. As soon as the car was parked, the kids jumped out of the vehicle, bubbling with excitement. Meanwhile, an icy fog began to roll down the street. The family was about to start off for the shops when Mr. Edwards suddenly stopped short and glanced around the short street. Where's Abby? Everyone looked around. Mr. Edwards peered into the windows of the car, but his little daughter had a leg behind. There was a tremble in Mr. Edwards' voice. Where is she? The three boys looked around, but there was no one else on the street. Then they all heard a faint voice scream out in the distance. Daddy! The voice sounded like Abby's. It seemed to come from the end of the lane, 
or bull placement at Roscoe Street. The Edwards family rushed up to Cobble Road, with Mr. Edwards leading the way. Abby, he shouted, where are you? The gates at the back of St. Luke's were open, and Mr. Edwards figured that Abby had wandered through the gate and onto the grounds. He hurried into the churchyard, followed closely by his wife and their sons, and again they heard Abby call out for her daddy. But the little girl was nowhere to be found, and the fog was getting thicker by the minute. Mr. Edwards didn't want to say this in front of his family, but he was beginning to wonder if some stranger had grabbed Abby and taken her into the ruins of the old church. He handed his wife the car keys and told her to get a flashlight from the vehicle. When Mrs. Edwards came back, Mr. Edwards climbed up on the ledge of the church window and shone the light into the deserted church. The interior was in ruins and nothing but rubble scattered around. Mr. Edwards knew that the Church of St. Luke had been gutted by an incendiary bomb in World War II during the Blitz. Only the shell of the building had survived. The church had been left in that condition as a reminder of the horrors of war. Even though it was in ruins, though, Mr. Edwards couldn't shake the thought that Abby's voice had been calling for help from inside the church. As he clambered down from the window ledge, Mrs. Edwards said, Listen. The faint, eerie sounds of organ music drifted through the open window. The family went to the police station and told the desk sergeant about their lost child. The sergeant alerted all the patrol cars in the area and told the officers in the city center to be on the lookout for the young girl. The family then rushed to, back to Bull Place to keep looking for Abby. They searched the grounds of St. Luke's once again and found nothing. They were about to go to their car to warm up when something happened that continues to puzzle the Edwards family to this day. A tall man, wearing a top hat and a long black coat, came out of the grounds of St. Luke's, and walking with him, holding his hand, was little Abby. When Abby saw her parents, she ran to them and started to cry as her father picked her up. The sinister man in black looked like something out of a Victorian age. He had a long bushy he had long bushy sideburns, a pallid face, and staring ink black eyes. He stood outside the gates of the churchyard and he said in a low, creepy voice, Please accept my sincere apology for any distress called, caused. Then he turned and walked slowly back towards the rear of the ruined church. A police patrol car came tearing down the road, and Mr. Edwards told the officers about the stranger who had just returned his daughter. Three police officers bolted from the car and rushed to the church, but the police found no one. The church was empty. More police came. The grounds were searched with powerful flashlights, but the place was deserted. Some of the officers also heard the faint sounds of organ music, but they never could find where the mysterious music was coming from. One of the policemen asked Abby where she'd been, and that's when things got really weird. Abby said that an old woman in a shawl had grabbed her and dragged her into the church, where a mass was being held. There were many people dressed in old-fashioned clothes. The, wo the women wore big hats, and the men were all dressed in black. Abby had screamed for her father, but the old woman had put her hand over, over the girl's mouth and kept her quiet. Sometime later, a tall man had come into the church and pulled Abby from the woman's clutches. He had been the man who had taken Abby back to her parents. The intrigued policeman continued to interrogate the little girl, and he asked her if the man had spoken to her about what had happened. Abby shook her head, then said, The man said he had been a, he had been a long time dead, that's all. A cold shudder ran up everyone's spine when they heard Abby's reply. Since that strange incident, the Edwards family refused to go anywhere near St. Luke's, especially during the Christmas season.
the Gutenberg Poltergeist. On December 17, 1959, the William Meyer House near Gutenberg, Iowa, was a scene of excitement that had nothing to do with the upcoming holidays. A poltergeist took over the house, and soon no one in the family was in the Christmas spirit. One evening, as the mayors, as the mayors were sitting in their living room, a crash thundered through the house. The couple raced in the kitchen, where the source of the bang was immediately apparent. They found the refrigerator tipped over. As they watched horror-struck, a flower stand blew across the room and exploded against the stove. Movement near a basket of eggs on the windowsill caught their eye next. One egg, lifted out of the basket, floated across the room and smashed itself on the kitchen floor. Door, I'm sorry, kitchen door. The Myers were dumbfounded. Mrs. Meyer was terrified. The inexplicable was in their home, in their kitchen, the heart of the home. What on earth was going on? The Myers hadn't had supper yet, but Mrs. Meyer was far too upset to cook in that kitchen. The couple went out to eat instead. Out of the house, among the chatter of the other diners, the Myers could almost forget the high strangeness of earlier. Mrs. Meyer felt herself relaxing. Surely there was some rational explanation for what had happened. When they got home, the Myers got ready for bed. It had, only, it had been a sorely trying evening, and all they wanted to do was go to sleep and try to forget the destruction in the kitchen. Mrs. Meyer got a glass of water and put it on the nightstand. Then she got into bed and reached for a book. A little light reading would relax her. There would be no relaxing reading that night. The glass rose from the nightstand and hovered over Mrs. Meyer's head as her husband watched in horror. Then the glass was squeezed in a powerful, invisible hand. It exploded, drenching her with water and shards of glass. Mrs. Meyer screamed. Her husband, Bill, just as terrified, insisted they move to the guest room. Mrs. Meyer dried herself off, and they moved to the other bedroom. They scooted under the covers like children frightened of the boogeyman. Before Bill could turn off the light, Mrs. Meyer shrinked again. Little black specks were appearing on the blanket. The Myers looked up, mystified. Soot was fall falling on them. Let's make sure I got this. Yeah. Soot was falling on them from the ceiling, appearing out of nowhere, to shower the bed with black grit. In the morning, Bill called the sheriff, who came out to the house to investigate. He was called away in the middle of a search, but he promised to come back. When the sheriff did come back several hours later, the Myers met him on the front lawn. They'd been spooked yet again. The sheriff hadn't witnessed any activity during his walk through the house, but after he'd left, several chairs had skidded across the floor. Even stranger, every single window in the house had cracked. But the Myers hadn't heard any sounds of breaking glass. Excuse me a second. This was the most excitement Clayton, Clayton County, Iowa, had seen in decades. People from Gutenberg and other towns started to show up unannounced at the Meyer home, searching for ghosts. On one of these visits was a Mississippi River towboat captain who came with some friends to investigate the strange tales. He admitted to the Myers that he didn't believe in ghosts. Mrs. Meyer, a gracious hostess, despite her supernatural troubles, offered the men the use of the guest bedroom for the night. The captain turned in, while his friends stayed in the kitchen with the Myers, drinking coffee and getting better acquainted. A ruckus in the bedroom brought the group running. 
A befuddled, the befuddled captain was still lying on the mattress. The mattress, however, was on the floor, eight feet away from the bed, bed frame. After a few months of poltergeist activity, Bill Meyer and his wife had quite, had quite enough. They moved away, leaving the house empty. Curiosity seekers and amateur ghost hunters made the abandoned, made the abandoned house their haunt for a while. The Myers eventually sold the house to their former neighbor, neighbors, the Finnegans. To combat the vandals that had started using the house as a playground, Wallace Finnegan turned the house into a barn. Now filled with hay instead, now filled with hay instead of ghosts, the house lost much of its spooky appeal. The vandals finally left it alone. Give me a second here. I'm just trying to. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it today uh, for the show. And uh, we will continue, I think, next Sunday or maybe earlier. Who knows? Depends on my, if I have a guest that doesn't clock in or something. But I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Again, my name is Charlotte, and I am your host of California, the host of California Haunts Radio. We broadcast Sunday through. I have to stop and think about this. We broadcast Sunday through Friday every week, and uh, every Sunday is Reading Sunday. But I want to thank you all, and again, if you're watching from Facebook, please hit that like and follow button if you like what you saw. And also, share it with five people. All right? We're looking to get the word out for the show. Also, if you didn't like the show, share it with five of your enemies, because, again, you know we're equal, we're, we are equal opportunity here. And, if, again, if you're watching from YouTube, please be sure to um, hit that little ghost so you can subscribe. Okay, I will see you guys tomorrow. We have uh, Mandy. Let me get this right here. Mandy Middlevillid with us, and we're going to be talking about the cost, of, the high cost of death, and what alternatives, you know, funerals and stuff, and what alternatives there are for people out there. So I'll see you guys tomorrow. Have a great rest of your Christmas.